that's actually part of what I'm going to discuss with you today is I think that's what's shaking a lot of us up is we're expecting the new reality to be the same as the old one and Mm. it's not and we have to adapt. Go. Hello everybody and welcome to the strategy show. I'm your host Simon Severino. This episode is brought to you by the Strategy Sprints. At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy in sprints. Strategy means more revenue every month. In sprints means doing it in a way that gives you more energy to do the next week sprint and the next week sprint and the next week sprint. Every day, we try and bring to you, the CEOs of this world, some insights, some tools, some tactics, some strategies. And today I am really honored to have here Alvin Lowe. Hi, Alvin. Hello, Simon. How do you say it? Simon? Uh, Simon. Most people say Simon. Simon. In Italy, it's Simone. Simone. But most people say Simon. Hi, Simon. Pleasure to meet you, sir. It's so cool to have you here. I wanted to have you on this podcast because when I first saw your video, you were born without arms, you never felt as a victim, and you are such a beautiful piece of inspiration and of hope and of beauty. And um, I am such a whiny person, you cannot imagine myself (laughs) talk when I talk to myself. You don't see it from the outside, most people would not uh, describe me as whiny, but I talk to myself in a very whiny way. Oh, today I have to do this. I have to do that. And, you know, and when I see people like you, this is that in such uh, a context, uh, find that attitude. I am inspired. I want to learn from you. I want to share your message with the whole world. So, uh, yeah, tell us, uh, who are you? Well, Simon, that, that's very uh, humbling. I mean that. Uh, I have to tell you that it is a great example you have just set for all of your listeners and viewers that we have to be honest with our own character traits. I am very positive by nature. Um, I will explain how that happened. But indeed, your audience may or may not be old enough or have the knowledge to remember a morning sickness medication called thalidomide. I know it did affect Austrians. I I know it was quite uh, prolific in Germany, in the UK. About 125 Canadians were born between 1960 and 1963. And it simply did not allow our limbs to grow properly. Each individual was a unique circumstance. Each story was its own story. Mine too. And by the way, Simon, we all have a story. In fact, I would like to suggest that we are the authors of our story. So if we have a sad story, then we're the authors. No matter what our circumstances, we have to be able to use what we possess. It doesn't have to be a happy, positive attitude that annoys some people. But my story is real. The biggest thing that I overcame being born without arms was not the physical aspect of being armless. In fact, let me tell you the whole story real quick. This is the elevator pitch, we call it. My, uh, my birth mother took thalidomide, two little pills. So when I was born in the summer of 1960, I had no arms. By the fifth day of my life, I was also homeless. I was truly an orphan because my birth family chose not to keep me. They simply went back to their farm and went on with their lives. And I was now looking at what the doctors said was a bleak, if not impossible future. 
it sounds like an infomercial, doesn't it? But these are facts. It's real. I was born and homeless like this five days into my life. But this is where I oftentimes will talk about how there are so many people, if we search them out in our society, have their own personality traits. And I, if I may use this expression, I won the lottery. I was taken home by foster parents because that's what they did. They looked after, uh, you know, either abused or unwanted children. They took me home as a baby. They had no plans of keeping me because here's the integral part of their story. Mom was 55 and dad was 53. If you're 55 or 53 watching this, I want you to think about whether you would have the wherewithal to take home an armless child and raise that child to be independent. So you can imagine when I talk about my backstory, it's legitimate. I grew up in a home where not only was I loved, but I felt privilege, not the white privilege that we're hearing around the world now with all the protests. I felt the privilege of growing up in a home with love, but it was tough love. We've heard about that expression. My first memory, in fact, I'd like to ask your audience, do you have one of these? Simon, can you call or conjure up your first physical memory in your mind? I close my eyes and picture where you grew up. What was the environment? Was it supportive or was it negative? I don't like to bring up bad thoughts from people, but I do agree that what we grow up with is a significant contributor to how we see the world as an adult. My first memory, believe it or not, and I'm just going to pull my chair back a bit here, was with my toes, sewing buttons on rags. With my toes. I even had to thread the needle. I had to tie the little knot in the, in the, in the thread. I had to sew these buttons on rags. And when I was done, my mom would cut them off and say, do it again. My dad was an auto and truck mechanic. He would bring home nuts and bolts from work, and I would screw them on and off and on and off for hours at a time. Not because someday I was going to be a motivational speaker and go out and dazzle people with my feet, but because my parents also knew the world isn't fair and the world is not fair. So if anybody out there is going, that's not fair, you're right. But I do believe that we can take that unfairness and twist it around because I believe attitude is not a sales scheme. Attitude is a habit. And we must learn it so that it's automatic, that we never have to think about it, that it just comes out of our blood. But more than anything, positive attitude is positive energy. And energy is like a magnet. Either it's attractive or it repels people. Do you ever meet anybody? You're around in 30 seconds. It was 25 seconds too long. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they've got a really good reason to be negative. I don't know. All I'm saying is that this attitude you see was there before I became the speaker and author that I am today. This is beautiful. So uh, for the people who are just listening, Alvin has no arms and he has learned to use his feet and his body as hands. So there is this beautiful uh, power and intelligence of the body, of the nervous system that just brought the sensitivity uh, of the hands uh, and, and, and the creativity of Alvin that came up with this not only he learned to play music, to, to, to do everything that uh, he needs to do every day. But fast forward, uh, he became a, a very, very successful speaker who raised over 200 millions for charity alone. So that's the fast forward thing. But let's go back. We will talk about three things. Tragedy to triumph, 
the power of Eero, and I am really surprised and I am curious what Eero is because I don't know either. And, uh, <laughs> and we will talk about first impressions that are not so critical as the lasting one. The highest calling right now is to be of service. So the best sales is to not sell at all, but instead to serve the people you care about. Selling is telling. So who do you serve? And how do you serve them? The quality of this experience makes the difference. If you want our experts to go over your current sales funnel and really dive into the experience and the needs of your clients at each conversion point and make it a wow experience, then you are in luck because we have an exercise for you. Our 15-minute sales audit and one-on-one -on -one coaching with a world-class sprint coach. Fill out a couple of questions about your sales funnel and you will have clarity. In your personalized coaching session, you will get clarity on your number one bottleneck, three ideas on how to accelerate your growth, and a tangible sales map on how to double your conversions. Go to strategysprints.com sales and do our 15-minute free sales audit today. Let's go to the first one. Tragedy to triumph. So the thalidomide saga was called the world's first human tragedy. I don't know if any of your listeners would be uh, familiar with Billy Joel and the song, We Didn't Start the Fire. But if you listen to it after this podcast, listen to the about almost just like going about three quarters into the song, <clears throat> Billy Joel says, children of thalidomide. <clears throat> and it's a segment that is all, that song is all about the plight of our planet of all the things we've gone through. And now we're gonna add another to the list, aren't we? The world is full of constant tragedy. Let's not mistake this. It happens all the time. But what most people forget is it's not intentional. Okay, this COVID crisis, it's not intentional. In other words, when we're looking for blame, which a lot of people do, that is the problem. In my entire lifetime, I've never heard an answer to the question, why me? It's never come. Yet, here is the key element. Thalidomide itself was a stigma. So if you picture the early memories for people that might recall this, remember, there was no internet. There was no 24-hour news cycle. The news trickled out very slowly. But even in 1960, the company called Brunenthal, out of Germany, were trying to hide this, trying to cover it up, trying to say, the drug is safe, but what the key is, this drug was never tested like today's pharmaceuticals because it didn't have to be. So if any of your listeners or viewers are involved in a work where they have to get licensed, where they have to pass tests, where they have to pass muster, they have to go through regulations and rules, occupational health and safety, believe it or not, all of those rules were written as a result of the thalidomide tragedy because since then, drug companies cannot just put a drug out which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because if we could only have a cure or some kind of treatment with vaccine now for COVID-19, but we can't, that's part of the rules. And what's ironic even more so, in Canada, I won't speak for the rest of the world, we did a research study that showed a significant number of the parents of the thalidomide babies took it personal. So they never pushed their children. They never gave them encouragement. 
a significant number of them didn't even send them to school. There's even stories of some of the children that were literally put in basements and never allowed out. It was embarrassing because this was 1960 in my case. We, we didn't have world knowledge like we do today of people with special needs. Conversely, my mom, Hilda Law, was my foster mom. So she had, she had nothing in this game except raising a child that needed to be independent. So I like to call my mom my first CEO. She was tough on me, but she was supportive. She was encouraging, but allowed me to make mistakes. More than anything, she, what they- She said, you good. have to clean up your room every evening. You yep. have to do it yourself. Why yeah, I had all that? the chores that yeah. everybody in this audience is familiar with, or maybe not. You see, another thing that happened, and this is not being critical, it's an observation. In the past generation or two here, we started, obviously we needed to give kids more respect because you know three generations ago, kids were given no respect. But we went the other way too far, where kids demand respect. And I don't believe that. I think we earn respect. And I think we earn respect by earning life. And earning life means doing tasks, becoming successful, maybe. But more than anything, becoming accountable for your life. My parents were elderly. It wasn't all you know, philanthropic thinking, if I can use that expression, which doesn't really fit. But it was, in fact, less about a charitable exercise and more about a practical one. They knew that I needed to be able to take care of myself. Mm. Okay, let me ask your audience a question. I don't want them to be uncomfortable. How would you go to the washroom, the bathroom, the loo, whatever you call it, if you didn't have any hands? I want you to contemplate that for a minute. Could you do it? Simon, could you do it? If you had to go to the washroom right now, could you go to the washroom and not use your hands? How, how should I do it? Precisely. That was the question I asked myself every single day. And it's the question we're asking publicly now. How am I going to do this? Well, you figure it out. You know, I'm not trying to be glib. It's a kind of a weird word. I just did it. The clothing is a key. I'm able to pull my pants or shorts down with my feet. I'm able to use a knob or a suction cup hook or some kind of device to allow me to exercise. It's almost like yoga where I'm pulling my pants up. My shirts go over my head. I've got a special device that does up my buttons. But the fact of the matter is, when we're feeling sorry for ourselves, a really good exercise is to look into the life of somebody who struggled worse. It's kind of really shallow, actually. But what it does is it allows our mindset to shift from tragedy to triumph. Mm. Powerful. Absolutely beautiful. And I am thinking, because I am also a father, uh, I am thinking of how many times when my kids say there are, there are two and four, and when they say, no, I cannot, I cannot clean up my room, and I just do it for them. And I'm resonating a lot with, uh, I'm definitely one of the parents of that later generation who became very permissive and maybe, and maybe also a little bit oversteered in that direction in terms of holding accountable. And uh, it's, it's okay for me, but uh, of course, I'm, I'm resonating with that right now and thinking of today and yesterday, what I said to my kids and how do I react. It's beautiful. 